The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. <laughs> And we are back to another edition of What's of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. Uh, I know it's late for some of you, but boy, tonight we have a really, really, really exciting show tonight. Genevieve, how are you doing over there? I'm doing well. You're doing trying, all right? I'm trying to rail in my... Oh, you're getting ready for this one? This, <laughs> this is going to be a really, really exciting show. I'm really looking forward to it. We have Jennifer Stein, who is the director mm-hmm. of this um, new documentary based on the experience that Travis Walton went through yeah. uh, in his abduction. But not only do we have Jennifer Stein tonight, mm-hmm. we also have the man himself, Mr. Travis Walton. But I believe, Genevieve, you're a little better at doing introductions. So you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to zip it and I'll let you do you. I think that's what the kids say. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, the new documentary is called Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. Um, and as you said, you know, Jennifer Stein is the producer and director. And as most of our listeners should know by now, Travis Bolton is somewhat of a legend, you know, when it comes to ufology, giving us a story that really compares to no other. Mm -hmm. The evidence and reports, you know, the first-hand accounts surrounding the case are completely startling, mystifying pretty much everyone worldwide still to this day. You know, it's no surprise that Jennifer um, was drawn to a case like this and her production Mm -hmm. knowledge spans over 15 years and she's always had a passion for ufology, which we can see even by the fact that she had her own UFO event back in 75 and ever since then she's been in this topic. She's won several EBE awards to date and even hosts her own television show. It's called Mainline MUFON. You can check that out um, on their website or on YouTube. Um, just type in Mainline MUFON, M-U-F-O-N. So we'll be discussing the documentary today and what they encountered along the way. Let me bring in uh, Jennifer. Jennifer, can you hear us okay? I can hear you. Awesome. And let me make sure that Travis can hear us, okay? Travis, can you hear us okay? Yes, I've heard all the foregoing. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. You know, we're really excited about this because, I mean, here we are 40 years later. Travis, can you believe it's been 40 years since since that event happened that changed your life? Oh, it's just hard to believe so much time has gone by because in some ways it seems like yesterday. You know, I remember being a kid and reading the story for the first time. And honestly, I tried to put myself in your shoes which is, uh, I don't recommend for for young kids, uh, because how can you even wrap your head around an experience like that? Jennifer, let me ask you this. How did you first hear about Travis and what happened to him? Well, I think it was the fire in the sky movie. That was the first time you were ever exposed to, to this account. Yes, some friends told me about it and said, Jen, you have to go see it. And I, I think I saw it in at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I had young kids and I was curious about the topic. I'd known I had a sighting myself, mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by it. 
And how did you get in touch with Travis? When did you reach out to Travis and talk about maybe doing something like this? Well, I was assistant to a director for the Roswell UFO conference. My dear friend, mm -hmm. Peter Robbins, was working for the city of Roswell in 2010. And okay. they were hosting Travis as a speaker. So I got the opportunity to have dinner with Travis. Wow. And we started to talk at that point, about having a conference like the Roswell Conference mm -hmm. up in Heber, because we thought Travis's story was as, just as significant as the Roswell story. Of course. And we knew what kind of an economic impact that Roswell Conference has in Roswell. I mean, 10,000 people right. annually converge on that small town every July 4th weekend mm -hmm. to celebrate that story and the events that took place in that town. Travis, you obviously have given countless interviews on, on radio and television, and you have been the subject of many articles and books. Have you been previously approached to do a documentary before Jennifer uh, came along with, with uh, her idea for this project? Well, there's been uh, a number of them over the years, but a lot of them are just, you know, like one segment out of, uh, you know, several things in an hour show. And right. There, there's not really enough time to do justice to the topic. So uh, nothing quite so ambitious as what uh, Jenna undertook. Okay. I know that you had a, you know, a, a bit of a difference of opinion, as, as many people did who are familiar with your story and your account, uh, you know, that read your book, etc. I know that the movie, which was pretty successful, uh, Fire in the Sky, kind of took certain liberties and, and it didn't stick to the actual events that you experienced. So um, did you feel like this was a chance to actually tell your story finally in your own words? There's certainly an opportunity to set the record straight on some things. You know, most people are, uh, you know, aware that uh, Hollywood always uh, fictionalizes real-life stories. And so, you know, it's the nature of the beast that comes with the territory. It nevertheless, you know, really did open up people's minds in terms of being willing to take a look at the facts. Right, right. And Jennifer, how did you go about starting this project? Because this is an event that happened, you know, 40 years ago. Where does one begin trying to uh, put the pieces together to start a project like this? Well, honestly, Frank, it was really daunting to me. And I didn't start out with the belief or the idea that I would actually make this documentary. I started out at helping as a coach for uh -huh. Travis to uh, organize a conference with a couple of other people, Peter Robbins, Ben Hansen, a couple of other people we were friends with that show up at an annual conference in Phoenix called the International UFO Congress. Mm -hmm. We actually started meeting there and planning a conference. We were planning maybe a third gate, 39th and a 40th. The, the 39th happened and the 40th will happen mm -hmm. in a few weeks. So in the planning of this conference, we realized that we wanted to take people to the site right. that the event actually happened at. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult to get to. It's at, I think, 7,000 feet. It's a rocky road to get up there. If it's snowing or raining or the uh -huh. roads wash out, it may be difficult to get a van or bus up there with a group of people. So I had the bright idea. Well, why don't we take a, why don't we make a virtual film of the site? Let's take a tour of the site make it like a virtual tour and in the event that we've sold tickets take people there and we actually can't get them there because of the weather we have a film we can show them in a in the comfort of a conference hall mm -hmm. and that's our backup 
Ah. So that's how it started. Okay, okay. And Travis, I imagine you, you've gone back to the to the site where this event happened a few times by now. How does it feel going back there? I, I mean, the, the, the memories just come flooding back of that night. Going back there always brings a very intense emotional uh, uh, feeling in me, even though, you know, my interpretation of the event uh, has, has sort of, evolved over the years. Mm -hmm. I know that one of the hardest things about this whole experience, like Ben said in the uh, documentary, maybe it wasn't so much what you had to go through, but the ridicule and the criticism you endured afterwards. 40 years later, here we are, you know, 2015, have things changed for you in that regard? Yes. You know, uh, when I wrote my first book, I, I actually said that people's reaction to it and the way that I was treated uh, might have actually overshadowed the trauma of the event itself. But, you know, things really have changed. I think the public perception has improved. Mm -hmm. You know, surveys show that uh, belief in the phenomena has grown exponentially. And just locally, just when I go out every day, you know, people mm -hmm. greet me uh, in a very positive way. Now, and that's a far cry from what it was back then. I must say, uh, you know, we had the pleasure of meeting you at the um, Contact in the Distant Conference. And, you know, you're one of the nicest guys. And uh, like I said, I grew up reading your books. And it's almost a bit intimidating for me because, you know, here's somebody that you've read so much about that went through a very extraordinary experience. And, I mean, no pun intended, but you're probably one of the most down-to-earth guys uh, I've ever met. Is it hard for you to maintain that kind of level of uh, sobriety considering? everything that is said about you and talked about you and has been the case for the last 40 years. Yeah, that is a major point here, you know, and I really had to make it one of the major uh, goals of uh, going forward. Mm -hmm. Dr. Harder put me on the phone with Eddie Hill and she had some advice about not letting uh, the thing take over your life. And so I stuck to it and, and, and kept it from doing that. I had kids uh, I raised at home and Mm -hmm. No, I didn't let it dominate the, the, the topic in the house. Uh, not that it was a tough subject, but right. to try to have a normal upbringing for them kind of made it more normal for myself. But, you know, that's been quite a challenge. And some of the other crewmen, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that they didn't go through quite what I did, mm -hmm. uh, have had their own share of difficulty, you know, uh, dealing with... Uh, people's reaction to it. Well, yeah, yeah, and I wanted to talk about them in just a minute, but let me go to Jennifer real quick. Jennifer, when you started working on this project with Travis, is there something that maybe you learned or found out or maybe came to realize once you started talking to Travis and putting this this project together that maybe you were not privy to before, that, that maybe, you know, those of us that, you know, read the books and, and just kind of seen some of the stories online um, didn't get from, uh, you know, interacting with Travis in person? Hmm, that's a really good question. I, I certainly learned a lot more of the details that, of course, I had to do in order to really document this mm -hmm. as well as it is documented. But I think what I really cherish from the project is realizing just what you said, Frank, what a real down-to-earth person Travis is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I tried to reveal in the film, that he appears to all of us, you know, larger than life. But mm -hmm. in actuality, he's very much like you and I. And he was wonderful to work with. And I think that was one of the greatest gifts I took away from this is a, probably a lifetime friendship with Travis. At least I hope I had that. <laughs> he's just a really special person to work with. Travis, you were talking about some of the experiences that, that uh, members of your of your uh, team 
who witnessed what happened to you had to endure. And, and one that quickly comes to mind is uh, Steve, uh, who was the youngest of the group. And it seems like he kind of had to bear the brunt of it because of his age. And you hear the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Gillespie, talk about how he seems, you know, like the weak one, pretty much. Um, how has your relationship with Steve um, changed in these last 40 years? You know, Steve was really, uh, you know, uh, kind of wise in a way. I, I can't blame him for taking off, changing his name, and staying hidden out for about 30 years. But, you know, in spite of that, you know, so, uh, one of the major debunkers uh, located him and uh, offered him a bribe to uh, uh, try to discredit the incident. But uh, I give uh, Steve credit that he uh, uh, never gave in to the temptation because that was quite a lot of money he was being offered. I was just going to say that I, I believe the amount was something like ten thousand. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm no economist, $10, but uh, in 1975 would have been uh, really helped him out the situation he was in after losing our job like that. And that's the the crazy thing because watching the documentary, you know, Steve says you know that he had some hard feelings towards you and that it was his family that kind of uh, encouraged him to kind of reach out to you and, and make peace. Um, how was that? Was it difficult? Was it, was there any awkwardness or was it just, you know, two old friends getting together again? Well, I was eager to, you know, help him out any way I could. And, you know, he, his daughter was wondering why his name had been changed in the movie script. And so, you know, I wrote her a letter and, you know, impressed upon her, you know, the courage that uh, Steve and the others had in returning that night tried to rescue me. So, you know, I, I went to pretty great lengths to try to build him up to his daughter and, and uh, make clear to her that uh, he had an important role in it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I said, I, I don't think any of you guys had it easy going through so many polygraphs. And what can you tell me about the first time you you went under uh, hypnosis for this? Um, because on the documentary, and, and I really like this because you you said that back then, you know, we didn't have the term PTSD. And that's pretty much what you were going through in those days. And they wanted you to, to take a polygraph and all this, but eventually you allowed yourself to undergo hypnosis. Was that difficult for you, making that decision and letting yourself be hypnotized? Well, you know, it took us uh, a great deal of trust, but, you know, I did, interacting with uh, Dr. Harder and the Aero Phenomena Research Organization uh, team members, uh, I developed the trust, and it turned out to be, you know, very well-placed stuff because uh, the hypnosis was not the ordeal I expected. It was actually... The main goal there was to separate my recall from this traumatic emotion that until that time, you know, I couldn't even finish a sentence. So, so you know, it was uh, a, a major milestone in terms of, you know, coming to terms and, and getting a grip on the fear to, to a much greater extent. I see. Um, I believe we've got Jennifer back on the line. Uh, Genevieve, I don't know if you want to rephrase that question real quick uh, to Jennifer so we can get her answer. Sure. Um, my question was, what first got you involved and interested in the UFO investigative scene? And related to that, what do you feel you've gained and taken away from your involvement in a, in a big story like that? Well, I had my own... UFO event myself mm -hmm. in 1975, actually the same year that Travis's event took place. Oh, wow. And 
I had it in my gray box for about 25 years because I thought I was alone. Mm-hmm. And I realized 25 years after the fact that, no, I actually wasn't alone. Someone else who was staying in my house. It was one of those 530 in the morning out the bedroom window mm-hmm. uh, looking at a craft that was about 19 feet long, oh, wow. less than 500 feet away. Wow. It was pretty profound. And I, when I realized I wasn't alone and that it probably actually really happened, mm-hmm. then I began to give myself permission to start to explore and move into this field a little bit because prior to that I just kind of kept it in my gray box saying well I can't you know I don't know what to do about it if I explore it I don't know what it means Mm -hmm. I don't know what contribution it can make to my life or I can make to to the field so I was very busy I ran a number of businesses and I was raising kids too so it it just kind of was dormant for a long time but when I finally stepped in to doing research and, and reading and exploring mm-hmm. in around the 1999-2000, that's when I began to realize that this was really the most fascinating thing. It's what we all want to know. Who are we? Where are we from? Mm-hmm. Is there a connection we have to a other beings, is there life, you know, on other planets or other life we don't know about on this planet? And Mm -hmm. do we interact? I was always a student of, uh, interestingly, you know, of aspects of consciousness. I'm I'm a yoga practitioner. I've been macrobiotic. I've been a big meditator. Mm -hmm. I followed the work of Edgar Mitchell and studied psychic phenomenon and precognition and non-locality. So I primed to step in and explore. And mm-hmm. um, over the years, I've realized that I can make a contribution. So I'm, I got involved in MUFON. I started a local group. I host speakers. I run conferences. I actually present and speak as well on things like ancient sites like Gobekli Tepe and places in Peru that I've been. And I also speak about my own UFO experience. And I speak about crop circles, which I've spent a lot of time exploring. Oh, so wow. I think I've made a contribution to opening other people's minds Absolutely. to the idea that the world's much bigger than we think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Travis, one of the people that we've been fortunate enough to have on the show has been Stanton Freeman. He speaks very highly of you. We, we talked about your case. Probably the only other case that, that really can compare, and not 100% in my humble opinion, but it's the Betty and Barney Hill case. Um, and the reason why I say it, it not completely is because obviously with, with you, Travis, we had you know a group of other witnesses that saw this happen. But Betty and Barney Hill, obviously the, the first big case. I don't know if, if, if you've heard, but it seems that there's a movie in the works regarding their abduction. Like I said, we're all familiar with Fire in the Sky, but has there been any attempt to remake Fire in the Sky, so to speak, and, and make it a little closer to what you actually experienced? Well, I have hopes that that'll happen. I've uh, collected the emails, and I encourage people to send more, from people uh, expressing the desire, where they're wishing that uh, they had stayed closer to the uh, actual story and uh, hoping that there would be a more accurate remake. So, I think that's inevitable that one day that will happen. But uh, right now, I'm I'm in discussion with uh, uh, some in, an enhanced version of the original movie, oh. uh, Blu-ray, high definition. Oh, very uh, cool. With some commentary by me and mm-hmm. the writer and some of the actors. Looks looking good that that might happen. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, I I, um, I know I'd be one of many interested. On that note, um, is there a specific email address that people can send in an email to now, maybe? Yeah, can we can we well, email? Get a campaign. Remember, it's TravisWalton.com. You know. Uh, okay. 
my personal email is travelswalton at cable1.net, but mm-hmm. uh, that's a little hard to remember than uh, travelswalton.com. Yeah, no, okay. because I'd totally be down for a special edition, yeah, with all the all the extras. Yeah, well, I'm encouraging all our listeners right now to email in and Absolutely. get that campaign going. Uh, Jennifer, let me, let me ask you about a good buddy of ours is Ben Hansen. Uh, he's a great guy. Anytime I need uh, a, a sobering mind to, you know, help me kind of navigate through some of the uh, treacherous waters we encounter sometimes when you study these type of topics, how did you uh, get in touch with Ben and what was his role in this documentary? Well, I have to credit Travis uh, with that. Travis had actually reached out to Ben as well and invited him to come up when we were starting to shoot for this uh, virtual tour that we were putting together, which we actually did produce. It's a a small piece Travis has for sale, and and also my co-producer, Bob Terrio, here in Philadelphia has uh, for sale. It's called Tracking Sky Fire. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, a walkthrough tour with uh, with some of the men from the crew with Travis. Right. And um, so Ben showed up. And then Ben, of course, has amazing camera equipment as well. And he started shooting and offered to let me use the footage in the documentary. And I was floored. I was nice. very grateful. And we stuck up our friendship at that point, And we, it's continued. I, I really like Ben a lot. He's a really special guy. Yeah, no, Ben, honestly, like I said, he's, he's one of the coolest guys I've ever met and, and really smart. And when it comes to these things, like I said, he, he's, he's got a sharp mind. Uh, Travis, how did you meet Ben? Well, he was uh, good friends with another friend of mine, Dana Harper. Uh, he, he was a former candidate for mayor of Mesa, Arizona. And I've just known uh, Dana Harper since uh, he, back when he had a cable access show, and I met him. Uh, we were doing a promotional uh, thing for the movie through Paramount that located him, and I continued that friendship with Dana Harper, and he was uh, friends with Ben, and, and he brought Ben uh, up, and uh, you know I met him, and we hit it off. Nice. Um, and let me ask you something real quick. I haven't had the the the, the good fortune of, of visiting, you know, Snowflake, Arizona, but. You know, we can see in the documentary, it's a small town. Um, you guys mentioned that, that it's a very, you know, it's a religious town. So obviously, having a group of young men in the in the 70s come out with a story like this definitely kind of shook at the foundations of this small town in, in Arizona. I was watching the, the documentary and I made a note that even Steve said that uh, his mom to this day, uh, she refused to believe the story and she believes that the whole thing is of the devil. What are your thoughts, um, Travis? What do you make of this experience? Was, was it a good experience? Was it bad um, how did you process that now? Well, you know, my, my initial impression was, you know, pretty horrific. And, you know, just the, the shock and, and pain that was involved there. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I came to, I was still in a very injured state. And, you know, it felt very life-threatening and probably was at that point. Mm-hmm. But it took me quite a number of years to realize that they probably, you know, didn't just take me aboard to do experiments or to torment me or to frighten me, but... Uh, actually, uh, it became necessary because I got so close that I got myself injured. Mm-hmm. I think that it was more of a rescue than a than an abduction. The nearest hospital was over an hour away, and you know it would have been fatal if they uh, left me laying there. That is uh, something very interesting that I don't know how many people uh, uh, know about this abduction. Is it well, like you said, it, you don't think of it as them trying to do something bad, but they were literally trying to uh, save your life, and that is really interesting. One question that I got 
uh, or at least I was asked to pass on to you, um, is uh, people obviously are fascinated with what happened inside the craft. And you describe in, in, in your book, the description you give is it's kind of your, what we come to know as these gray aliens. And a few moments later, you, you are then met by these other more human-looking beings with, with uh, these clear helmets. But one of the questions I got asked is, were the gray aliens, did they have, you know, these black eyes as a lot of people see them? Because uh, a lot of people point out that in your um, website, you have this gray alien with kind of like just a, a circular... Uh, uh, yeah. Well, in the first place, uh, we didn't have her gray back in 1975. Uh -huh. But I really do believe that... What people call grays is really referring to what is probably a number of species that are in England related. You know, they, they have some superficial similarities, being hairless and pale and, uh, you know, very large eyes. But other than that, um, the overall structure of two arms, two legs, mm -hmm. the skeptics were, uh, were quick to jump out there and say, oh, life from other worlds wouldn't be remotely close to a human form. Mm. And mm -hmm. they just don't understand biology. They're, you know, I think that there's probably many forms, and they are going to look very similar. Anything right. that becomes tool-using and uh, creates machines that can come here is going to have to have certain necessary characteristics in order to make that happen. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Jennifer, uh, I know that the documentary has been seen by, by a number of people by now. It's even won awards already. What has been the reception to this documentary of you know about Travis? Well, I have to say I'm very pleased. I get email after email from people saying, well done. It's a real education and background, especially for the younger generations that seem to want their life in a sound bite and they don't really pick up books and read as mm -hmm. much as our generation did. And for them, they might only learn of the Travis story by watching a film. And maybe then they'll pick up a book and, and read it. So um, it's screened in many places around the world already. We've had screenings in Australia and in like Hawaii and in wow. all across Canada. It was part of a tour called Modern Knowledge, and it's now in a lot of mainstream film festivals. I've put it in about 40 different film festivals wow. just to see how it's going to do. Mm -hmm. And some, you know, you have to kind of read the instructions to make sure you're placing it correctly. Some have just, you know, said they're not accepting it, but others have accepted it, screened it, and it's won in two cases. It's won in, uh, in Burbank. It won an official selection, which nice. is kind of like an Academy Award nomination. You know, oh. it's, it means you, you, my film was one of five that were selected maybe out of 40 or 60 documentaries that they were sent. And, um, that's pretty good. So it's, they say you can use official selection as actually like an award category. Oh, wow. And it also got an official selection election in Long Island at a film festival there called the Chain Long Island Film Festival. And uh, then it also won an award with them as well. It won what's called the Personal Story uh, Documentary Film Award. Wow. So it's starting to kind of trickle out there. And that's my, that was my goal. Mm -hmm. If I could get it into mainstream film festivals and I could get it acknowledged, then it has a better chance of possibly selling to a network or mm -hmm. something like that. 
and maybe even going more mainstream, which would, of course, you know, wake people up to the story, hopefully help Travis in, in his continuing life journey of mm-hmm. sharing his story. And Travis, how do you feel? I, I imagine that 40 years of living with this experience, um, how does it feel to see this portrayal of your story on film being so well received by so many? It's very gratifying, you know. Uh, it does seem like things are finally, you know, coming around. You know, even even back then, you know, uh, I I selected quotations from my book about, you know, eventually the truth will win out, and mm-hmm. it, it seems that it is. Like I said, of all the UFO cases, this is the one that, uh, you know, from my childhood, I I've always uh, uh, remember, and it, it's really fascinating, Jennifer. When you started getting everybody, you know, in line for interviews, was there anybody that was hesitant about participating in this project, considering the nature of it? I know that there's people who still don't uh, believe Travis and and the witnesses. Did you encounter any resistance from anyone at all when you approached them about giving their opinions on this? On this well, story? yes, uh, some people. Um, were a little reluctant at at first. Mm-hmm. Um, some people I actually didn't get, which I was hoping I was. Oh, going really? To get. Travis's uh, wife Dana. You know, I kept thinking she was going to come. Right. Maybe she would agree, but she was just too shy on mm-hmm. the camp. One of the one of the crew members wasn't really willing uh, to to come forward, and I trusted Travis on on this case as much as I would very much like to have one of the other crew members. Mm-hmm. A, we couldn't get him, and we're also missing two crew members. And I think it's really important to, you know, get this story on film the mm-hmm. way I've archived it because uh, time moves forward and yeah. we lose mm-hmm. people. And uh, most of the, um, like I interviewed a polygrapher. I'm, I'm actually working on a revised edit of uh, this film. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get the current polygraph president of the American Polygraph Association. And at first, I think he was a little resistant, um, mm-hmm. but uh, that's not out for the public to see as yet. But, you know, once he looked at the data, Mm-hmm. Once he looked at all of the the polygraph, um, not the tracings, but the reports on the tracings, he was very convinced and, and really wanted to be part of this project. Wow. Uh, most of the ufologists I talked to were thrilled to be part of it, and, you know, jumped at the mm-hmm. tracings. But some of the crew members were a little, you know, hesitant, like, oh, again. And, right. Are you going to make me look like a fool? People are always suspicious of filmmakers because... Filmmakers can make them look like they don't know what they're talking about. Right, right. And, <laughs> and I, that, was, that was my goal. But I mean, I can understand their their apprehension. It's such a, a, an amazing and, and strange uh, uh, tale. And uh, Travis, people still have a hard time uh, believing, in spite of the evidence, in spite of all of these, you know, uh, polygraphs and and, and whatnots. Uh, people, for some reason, you know, you still run into a couple who are not a hundred percent on board with with this. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just like fear? Do you think there's people who are still afraid to just be open to the possibility that oh, there's yeah. lot you more know, out there? I've, I've run into, uh, you know, every, you know, about a year and a half or two, I'll get some email blast from somebody just, just unloading on me. But uh, mm-hmm. every time it's turned out to be some real young male, <laughs> literally on the computer in his parents' basement. <laughs> and, uh, it really is a fear-based, and once I convince them, look, uh, this is very, very unlikely to happen to you, and, uh, you know, you're just reacting out of fear, then they, they 
they turn around. It's amazing to me how often they, you know, turned apologetic after uh, blasting me. I got one just last week the same way. But it's rare. You know, most everything is positive nowadays. And uh, it's because a lot of the false rumors have been disproved over time. And a lot of the better evidence trickling out, people are realizing. And plus, you know, science is backing it up much better than it did. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't even know of a single planet outside of this solar system. And now, just this last year, uh, NASA uh, made the pronouncement that it's now a virtual certainty that nearly every star has about a dozen planets. The skeptics were fond of saying back then that, oh, uh, even if there was life out there, they could never find us. Well, it, with our relatively primitive technology, we have a telescope that has identified dozens of possibly life-supporting planets going around stars within our galaxy. So if we know about them at our stage in the development, certainly they've known about us for a very long time, even before they ever ventured here. Let me ask you this, because you spoke about this at the 2014 uh, Contact in the Desert conference. And Jennifer, I'm, I'm so happy to see that you guys included this in the documentary. And that's the finding of the uh, growth of the trees in the area where the uh, the abduction took place. Let me start with Travis really quick. Travis, how did you guys find this evidence that's really honestly if everything that's out there is not enough i think that this is proof that something extraordinary happened in those woods this was realized later because you know uh i didn't even know about it when mike noticed it we were out there doing an interview for uh for paramount to promote fire in the sky and he Mm -hmm. noticed the change in the trees and he never even said anything to anybody we went back after the snow melted and, and took some core samples and was made to discover this phenomenon. But it's only recently when, you know, so many trees died because of the forest fire that went through there, mm-hmm. we were able to get a complete cross-section of the trees and find out something even more intriguing, that this rapid growth was lopsided, that it was on the side of the tree uh, towards where the craft had been. And, you know, the whole idea that radiation of any kind mm-hmm. can accelerate growth is kind of counterintuitive. But you would think that radiation destroys uh, living things. But uh, Ben Hansen uh, did some research and discovered uh, uh, some papers that had been written on the Scots pine tree species surrounding uh, the Chernobyl nuclear accident and discovered that those trees had experienced uh, accelerated growth. That's huge. I, I know that you share those news with um, those of us who were in attendance at your uh, talk at uh, Contact in the Desert, and I remember just being a bit flabbergasted by it, really, because it's uh, it was really, really amazing to see that, again, 40 years later, we're still learning things from what happened that night of November 5th, 1975. Uh, Jennifer, did you know about this evidence of the of the tree growth, or, or was this something that you uh, were uh, presented with and included in the documentary? Well, I had heard Travis present a couple of times, so he's known about the rapid growth in the forest for probably 20 years, maybe even. Mm-hmm. But when I was up there filming with him, I was looking at the epicentric nature of this growth and that it was completely uneven and it was only on one side of the tree. And then I started to say, now, where was the craft? Where was the craft? And then I kept running around Mm -hmm. looking at all the trees going, oh, my gosh, 
fish growing in the direction where the crab was. I was absolutely stunned at this. And we actually didn't emphasize this in this version of the film that's out Mm -hmm. um, because we were so excited by it. We didn't actually sit someone down and say, all right, explain this exactly the way it is. I see. But um, it's very evident when you stand there and look at these trees, which are now completely cut off. So Mm -hmm. you can you can sit on them, you know, you can look at them. Mm-hmm. see the whole surface of the tree, whereas before they were only taking core samples. Right. So it's visually very dramatic. Yeah, when, when Ben found the Scott's Pine article, it was even more of a, like, a, you know, a further white paper documenting that this is actually possible. That's wow. when we got real sighted. And uh, I wanted to, to ask Travis, I've seen pictures of you, uh, you know, back then when it happened and, you know, pictures of you now and, you know, you're you're in excellent shape, good sir. Uh, the craft seemed to have changed those trees. I know you've said before that one of the things that you notice is that you you rarely if ever got sick. Um, how what what did you notice change after you had that experience? You know, of course, I had some stress-related symptoms for mm-hmm. several months afterwards. But, you know, as time went on, I started to notice that, you know, the whole family gets sick and I didn't. But, you know, I just figured it was, you know, that I tried a little harder to be healthy or something. But mm-hmm. as time went on, it became more and more, you know, serious. And But I didn't want to say anything because I've always tried to stick to the things that I can document. There's a number of things in connection with this that are very, very interesting, but they're so amazing that I would be afraid to say anything about it unless I could soften it in some way. So when I finally could go in and get the, the, the attendance uh, print out from my employer to show that I hadn't called in sick one time in 38 years, uh, then I felt like I could talk about it. But, you know, there's still a little bit of a reluctance because, you know, I never want to be the bug in the jar. It's not about me. It's about what happened. Mm-hmm. Right, of course. Um, Jennifer, in the documentary, you guys interviewed, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Stanton Freeman. And um, he said uh, a really excellent quote there that, that we see in practice a lot when we deal with these kind of topics and, and people will try to debunk it. And he said, if you can't attack the data, attack the people. I don't mean to kind of focus on anything negative, but have you had any, you know, heavy criticisms and because you decided to, to take on this project and do this? There are a couple of comments that pop up on Facebook mm-hmm. and that pop up on um, YouTube under the trailer that, you know, oh, you know, she believes this crap and mm, things like that. Right. And usually I just, you know, take them down, you of know, course. off the YouTube site so people aren't, uh, you know, poorly influencing the situation. But I haven't had to undergo, heart, you know, anything really in comparison to what Travis has had to do right. all of his life. And especially from Philip Class, um, the most negative, uh, the most negative comments usually come from the people who know the least about the. Mm, wow, uh, very true. Uh, the debunkers being the exception because uh, they are aware of positive things, but they cover it up. They're right. very selective. They look for anything that will uh, they think that will weigh against it. And if there's something that's always in favor of it, they'll change it to make it uh, look like it comes down on the other side. Yeah, it's true. Let me ask you this, Travis. Uh, I believe it was Steve, actually, that that said it, 
uh, referring to one of his brothers that I believe works in a, in a university out there in New York, he said that his brother asked them, you know, why would aliens, you know, visit hardworking blue collar guys as yourselves uh, and not the more, I'm not quoting him in this part, but the implication is the more intellectual individuals in society. I don't know that we were actually chosen. I think that these, uh, the activity is, uh, they have a preference for remote areas, and uh, it just so happens that, you know, we're out in this remote area. Mm-hmm. Work. Yeah. There's some people that think we were selected, and, you know, even Steve has accused me of being chosen for some reason. Uh, yeah, it's more likely we just happen upon them and, and uh, react in an unexpected way. From hearing you talk and explain and, and go through through that experience, I'm beginning to, to understand and see more of that. Because obviously, I mean, if you just read the book, I think a, a lot of us, I know I did, kind of just made this this uh, idea in our head that it was a, a typical abduction. They saw you there and, you know, wanted to grab you. And I know that Fire in the Sky maybe kind of helped perpetuate that idea a little bit. I know that we're running out of time with Travis, if you'd be so kind just to answer one last question before we, we let you go for the night. If they came back, and by they I mean the uh, the occupants of, of the craft, if they came back 40 years later, you know, if they came back tonight, and you got a chance to, to see them for a bit, what would you ask them? Well, you know, I used to say I'd turn around and run the other direction, but, you know, now I'm realizing that the, the intention was not as negative as I thought and was probably actually benevolent. Um, you know, I would, uh, I would ask, the, you know, it's always the why me, you know, mm-hmm. was it because I was just dumb enough to get too close or was it, uh, was there some reason we were chosen? There's a number of researchers who have uh, seized upon the idea that many people in uh, literature and science and even in the music industry have reported sightings or experiences that they felt inspired them in some way to be the creative, uh, exceptional, uh, you know, geniuses, quote-unquote, that they uh, later became. So uh, that's a question that I would ask. Just one more quick question. Um, You know, how do you feel now that 40 years on, there's this, you know, acknowledgement, this huge event, a conference centering around this one experience? Do you feel some sort of relief in finally seeing this this recognition, you know, people believing you and actually wanting to listen. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit of a vindication, a partial uh, regress of, of the past uh, experience. You know, I would have to say that even yet, I'd rather the whole thing had never happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if I had it to do over again, I still would stay in the truck, but... You know, you have to go forward. You have to make the best of what you experience, and and uh, who knows what the future has to hold. You know, it's uh, it's getting better. Yeah, mm-hmm. it definitely is definitely getting better. And honestly, I'm I'm very glad to see things moving in that direction uh, because this, to me, this case is very important. And I think that we should treat it with the seriousness it deserves. And I think as time has progressed, actually time has become our uh, biggest ally in this because as, as you guys have noted um, during this interview, you mentioned that people have been more receptive and more open to what happened to Travis. Travis-Walton.com is the website, uh, correct, Travis? And that's where they can go to get more info. They can order your book from there as well, correct? Yes, that's correct. Awesome. And then the Skyfire Summit is also coming up, and you're going to be there, obviously. And where can people check out information for that? That's the website, really. 
easy to remember too. Skyfiresummit.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Travis. We Thank really you. appreciate it. It's uh, you know, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Again, one of the nicest guys I've, I've ever met. Definitely check out the website, check out the book, and check out the documentary. Uh, Travis, thank you so much for, for giving us time tonight to talk about this, and uh, we wish you the best. Thank you. Great show, Frank. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we still have uh, Jennifer. Jennifer, can you hear us okay? Yes, I can. I'm still here. Awesome. All right, Jennifer. So we're going to just take a quick break. And we're going to come back. We're going to get into the nitty gritty because one of the things I always regret not doing was going into movies. Not not as an actor, honestly. I have a, I have a face for radio. I'm the epitome of it. But I always wanted to, uh, to work in movies and make movies and do all that cool stuff. And documentaries is honestly one of my favorite genres. So we're going to pick your brain in regards to that in just a few minutes. So are you cool to hang out and just enjoy Absolutely. some music with us? Absolutely. Awesome. I'll all right. Here. Cool. So we're going to come back to Jennifer in just a minute. And uh, we're going to play some tunes here. Um, you know, we're talking about all this, uh, you know, uh, experiences. And one of the interesting things that happened to Travis is that he was gone for five days, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and nobody was sure where he was. And when he came back, you know, he thought he had been gone for something like two or three hours. So it's, it's basically your typical case of uh, missing time. So if all goes well here, I'm going to play a little, a little ditty. One of my favorite songs by KMFDM when they started using their name backwards and they were MDMFMK. <laughs> uh, this one's called Missing Time. Enjoy. West of the Rockies on the Independent FM. Don't go away. We're going to be back here with uh, Jennifer Stein, director of Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. Here mm -hmm. we go. West of the Rockies. What's up, guys? This is Jorge Diaz of Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. And you're listening to West of the Rockies with Frank. This portion of the show is sponsored by Haunted Orange County, your premier source for all things haunted in and around OC. From haunted history ghost walks to ghost group hunting expeditions at some of SoCal's most haunted destinations. Make your fall plans early and book an upcoming tour or investigation today. Visit hauntedoc.com. We are back to the second hour west of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we have an excellent, excellent show going on tonight. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. You can find the show at WOTR Radio on the old Twitter and check out the website WOTRRadio.com. Genevieve Uway on the old Twitter there. Mm -hmm. And uh, always Thursday nights, No Added Flavors at No Added Flavors. O-U-R-S, the British way. Uh, music, fun facts, requests, and all that good stuff. You don't want to miss it. We are joined tonight by Jennifer Stein, director of this excellent documentary, Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. Mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer, can you hear me okay? <laughs> I can hear you awesome. just fine. Jennifer, where can people find you online? Well, if they go to my film website, it's uh, On Wings, mm -hmm. and it's based on my maiden name. Uh, so there's an E in there, so I'll spell it. My maiden name was Wing, W-I-N-G-E. So I put an O-N on the front. 
Ah. of that and an F on the back. And that's where On Wings came from. <laughs> Very so nice. On Wings, O-N-W-I-N-G-E-S productions.com. Awesome. And uh, and a quick mention, of course, we had Travis in the first hours. Big hello to him and, and a big thank you again for joining us tonight. You can find his website at travis-walton.com and check out skyfiresummit.com if you want to go and be part of uh, this uh, 40th anniversary event. The lineup, honestly, I don't want to take too much away from it right now, but the lineup looks absolutely amazing. So if, if Jennifer Stein could tell us a bit about you know, what this event will encompass. That'll be great. Yeah, I don't have the uh, website open in front of me, but mm -hmm. um, I, you probably can see who the speakers are. I know um, uh, my dear friend from Northern California, Ruben Udiarte, who is a, uh, a big MUFON person. He's the state director in California, and he's written a number of books. He will be there. I think his co-author, no Noe Torres, will be there. Um, you know, I, I, ben Hansen, doing of course, a, is going to be there. Yeah, no, he's going to do a, you know, a, a sky watch. Yeah, Ben. Right. And I know that you also have uh, uh, Lee Spiegel from from the Huffington Post, who obviously uh, a lot of us know him. Uh, you know, a lot of us are familiar with his columns on on the Huffington Post, where, where he talks a lot about this. Was it easy for you to get some of these uh, these people involved? Well, Frank, it was very synchronistic, and mm. when things line up synchronistically like that, you pay attention. At least I do. <laughs> right, of course. What happened is I'm of course involved in Pennsylvania MUFON, and mm -hmm. I was intricately involved behind the scenes in mm -hmm. setting up a conference that happened uh, in Cherry Hill last summer. So it was our 2014 National Symposium. Mm -hmm. And Lee was one of our speakers. So was Ben Hansen. Stanton Friedman was supposed to be. Kathy Martin was there. Mm -hmm. So what I did is, and actually, um, uh, George Knapp was as well. I was hoping to get George while he was there at the conference right. and did not. Mm -hmm. But um, I just decided to take a hotel room, set it up like a studio, and shoot interviews with these guys back to back because oh, wow. they were all going to be in one place. Mm -hmm. And then see how I could use these interviews with some of the other <laughs> interviews that I had already gotten, like mm -hmm. with you know, the gentleman who was the uh, polygraph expert, Cy Gilson, and the police, um, you know, sheriff at the time, Marlon Gillespie. I would collected some of these other interviews. And, of course, I had gotten Rich Dolan. Previously, mm -hmm. I'd gone up to New York to get him, and I'd sat Travis down, and I'd interviewed him. So I was starting to see how I could put this all in with some of the footage that Bob Terrio and I had shot before. And, of course, Bob was with me, Bob Terrio, my co-producer. He was with me in Philadelphia. So that's how I got them. <laughs> I nice. got them all of the conference. I noticed that in your logo, you used the, the, you know, at least I'm familiar with it by the name of the winged disc or the winged sun. But you have a, a very, a very interesting little image there for your logo for On Wings Productions. Why did you pick that symbol well, in particular? My maiden, my maiden name is Wing, right? Mm -hmm. And when I started to do email, I decided that maybe I should pick up that maidenhood a little bit. I, mm -hmm. when I got married, I took my husband's name, which was Stein, ah. but I had been Jennifer Wing before that, mm -hmm. and I thought it was time to kind of reconnect when internet came. You know, when email started uh -huh. back in 95 or so, I decided I would use my maiden name, but it wasn't enough letters. I had to add some letters. Oh, I wow. had to have like eight letters instead of five, I think. 
So that's where I came up with the O-N on the front and the S on the back. And that was just for email purposes. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just decided I would stick with it and keep it because it has a powerful, there's, there's power to flight. Right. Stein is is like a stone Mm -hmm. or a beer Mm -hmm. mug carved out of stone. Right. That's where the name Stein comes from. That's what it represents. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to embody that name because names are powerful about Mm -hmm. who we are and who we become. So it was natural to go for an icon representation of that, which was the winged disc. And of course, I had been a friend and and student of Zachariah Sitchin, who taught me a lot about, you know, Sumerian history. And Mm -hmm. they actually used the winged uh, imagery in Sumerian iconology as well. I was attracted to it and it made sense. And I just, you know, decided this would be... A good logo for the business. People would remember it. Mm-hmm. I've always been intrigued by Sekarai Sitchin. What, what did you make of his research? Uh, did you find yourself being in line with uh, everything he, he put out? Well, probably not absolutely everything. Uh, he was very, he, he was very much a, a symbolist. Um, uh-huh. And he came up with theories about this other planet, Nibiru, that he says this is race called the Anunnaki lived on and that Mm -hmm. when Nibiru Mm -hmm. came close to our planet, they basically, you know, flew from one planet to the other. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a little bit of a stretch because Nibiru is still possibly its planet X, which we now know about, but we're not really sure. Right. What impressed me about Zachariah was his scholarship and was his attention to Jewish history because he grew up in a yeshiva in Israel, which is basically like a religious school where you study Bible alongside of mathematics and, and, you know, language and other things like that. So he discovered when he went to college in London, he went to the um, London School of Economics. Across the street from that school is the British Museum. Mm-hmm. So I could tell that he was hanging out there a lot. And he got wow. very interested in reading and translating cuneiform. And when he read and translated the cuneiform, he realized that very similar stories that were Bible stories were also being written in cuneiform. The names were changed. You know, some of the some of the placements of the people were cha- were different like the story of Cain and Abel mm-hmm. or, you know, the story of, of Isis was there. Um, so very interesting, like mythology right. was embedded in these cuneiform tablets of early, early history. And he began to realize that the story of our mythology of our solar mm-hmm. system was also embedded in there. And that's the story of Genesis. So that's what impressed me. And I've read so many other people because of Zacharias mm-hmm. like if you read his biography you go back and you read some of the works of Barassus, you read Josephus Flavius you read um, oh gosh, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky now the list goes on and on and on, then you start to come up with your own cosmology and you, you know, f- from reading Zacharias' work, you become a cosmologist yourself, mm. or a cosmogonist um, there's many different terms for it, but you, you start to question and understand things differently. Right. And as a Jew, I became very fascinated with 
how Jewish history's timeline mm-hmm. interfaces with what he wrote about. And that's what really impressed me. Like the, the beginning of the Jewish calendar was the end of the Anunnaki calendar. You know, we just celebrated the Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Yeah, yeah. So that's, according to Zechariah, that was the beginning of Earth going back to humanity. And I think that's wow. quite found and quite feasibly possible, that a progenitor came here, mm-hmm. helped us get established, established laws, right. and, and then left. Mm-hmm. That's possibly quite feasible. And yeah, and that's why I was asking about the uh, the symbol, because I, I became familiar with that, with the winged disc, uh, reading uh, some of the, the things that uh, Zechariah Sitchin put out. You know, I see a lot of things that can't just be somebody that just randomly interpreted a tablet. Well, actually, at the University of Pennsylvania, where they have a large collection of cuneiform tablets, mm-hmm. they've mm-hmm. actually created a dictionary, and they've done a lot of translations of the existing tablet and, and written books on the mythology that came out of soon. And mm-hmm. their mythology is actually not that different than oh, Zachariah's wow. perspective. Wow. So he really wasn't that far off. He was pretty accurate, but just some of the links, some of the conclusions he drew, like right. because of this, then that means this. You uh-huh. know, he did make some extrapolations, which were a little extreme. As, as you mentioned, there's a lot a lot of things in his work that, that we can walk away with and definitely help us uh, gain a better understanding, especially on, on that particular ancient civilization, which is so fascinating. Jennifer, one of the things that I know by um, looking at your website is that you also did a, a short 20-minute uh, documentary film chronicling your uh, trip to the, the south of England and looking at crop circles. Uh, tell me a little bit about how crop circles get your attention. Well, I'm a pattern recognizer and always have been. I mm-hmm. came from a family of artists and I appreciate sacred geometry. And you can't um, ignore the magnificent sacred geometry that's being presented in the fields for us, certainly in England. Mm-hmm. So I was fascinated by this. I needed to see it for myself firsthand. Uh-huh. And Ruben Udiarte and I made a trip there in 2000. And it was a very, very profound, synchronistic, you know, journey into my understanding of what it's like when you follow a path and that path unfolds Mm -hmm. for you. Um, It was just an incredible experience. And I came back convinced that something significant was going on in the fields of England and in probably in many other places. And we know crop circles are happening actually all over the world. They've been documented in over 60 countries. Mm -hmm. So I started to explore and investigate this, continuing to make trips every year to England, but I started to go into them in the United States and also in Canada as well. And um, I became so fascinated by it, friends started to say, Jen, will you like present on it? Will you (laughs) show us your pictures? Tell us about your experiences. And then that led to me wanting to be able to present actually scientifically on the topic. So I prepared and read and studied, and I do a fairly decent presentation on them now. And in fact, I just did that in, um, I think I was in Exeter, New Hampshire two weeks ago at their uh, UFO conference presenting. Oh, that is very cool. Let me ask you about crop circles, because I haven't had the, uh, the opportunity to see one uh, or stand inside of one. And uh, a lot of people that have, you know, been within the uh, the uh, a crop circle, they say that they can sense like a certain uh, peace, or you know, they they definitely feel different. Uh, did you experience anything like that seeing these crop circles? 
Yes, they're very alluring. It's very mm-hmm. common to be drawn into them, almost like a bee is drawn into a flower. And all you want to do is lie down in the warm sun and mm-hmm. go to sleep. I mean, it's it's like a hay or a bed for you, right? It's, uh, it's soft and it's squishy. Mm-hmm. And there's people from all over the world there playing and you know children playing wow. and dogs frolicking around, usually. Mm-hmm. It's a very joyful experience. I've heard, like I said, from numerous people that, that have visited a crop circle site. It's, it's definitely a, 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 a different experience. Uh, I want to send a quick shout out to Tony Merlo who says, uh, great show so far, guys. Terrific guest. I'm in Vermont listening on my phone. Shout out to Tony. Thank you for tuning in on your phone all the way from Vermont. Let's go back to the documentary. You, you sent me a little note and this was, I mean, for all of you, you know, aspiring filmmakers uh, out there, you know, the, the, these are some of the challenges I guess you will have to overcome. Tell me what happened with a with a drone you guys were using for the filming. Well, a, a lovely man named Gary Hilton offered to come up and do some shooting with Travis and I, and uh-huh. I was of course looking to get incredible shots of the beautiful valley that you can see from the top of this plateau right. where this their event happened. If you go to the edge of the plateau, you can see for almost 50, 60 miles. And mm-hmm. I thought it would be really dramatic to like fly the drone right off the edge because I could stand on the edge with my camera and shoot it, but not the same as shooting it from above where you can actually see this vista. And Gary Hilton reluctantly said, well, we have to be really careful because they can get caught in down drafts. And the best time to go is like you know, 4.35 o'clock in the morning, right when the sun's coming up. So I said, no problem. Let's do it. Let's go. So we go out when it's very still before the air turbulence starts, you know, and the sun was just coming up and uh-huh. we get all set up and we fly this drone right off the cliff. And sure enough, it malfunctions and it drops oh my. right down into the canopy of the forest. And we thought, gosh, you know, we've just lost a pretty expensive piece of equipment. I mean, right. by the time you get a GoPro camera on them and mm-hmm. you get the GPS coordinates on them that you need, you know, you're, you're looking at probably close to $2,000 that just dropped out of the sky. I, we were like, oh, gosh, that means, you know, does, does filming end? And Fortunately, Gary has about five of them, so he had some other backups. But we did decide to go hunting for it. And Travis and I, um, you know, it was a, a complex thing. We ran back to the hotel. I mm-hmm. called Travis. I said, I think we need to go into the woods and try to find it. You don't really want to go into the woods um, without a plan, without right. a clear entrance point and a clear exit point, because it's easy to get lost. Mm-hmm. And if you run out of daylight, um, it gets cold up there at that right. elevation. And there are bears, there are wild boars, coyotes, you know, poisonous snakes, all sorts of stuff you have to worry about, poisonous spiders. So um, Travis and I made a truck into the forest hoping that we could have a pretty good pinpoint Mm -hmm. of where this thing went down because I was also filming from the side of the the cliff. So we had a pretty clear picture of where it was Uh from the air. But, of course, on the ground, finding it is, like, Uh, very difficult. Travis and I headed in. We both had two bottles of water. He had some firearms with him, thank goodness, in case a bear came after us. And uh, we basically spent the day in the woods looking for this thing and didn't find it and almost got lost ourselves. But uh, we followed the sign of traffic and we got out to the highway before the sunset, which was good. And then we we, uh, basically flagged a car down and got us to drive us back to camp, basically. Oh, wow. Wow. That's quite the adventure. It was a lost day. 
But uh, that's where Travis and I got to know each other really well. Walking <laughs> <laughs> in the woods, looking up and talking about it. Right. I imagine that that's the perfect way to to bond. Uh, but it's funny because you know in the documentary, I believe Travis uh, explains that that area, a lot of it, it's it's just wilderness, right? Like it's yeah. has, nobody has gone through some parts of, of that massive you know landscape. It took a lot of courage for for you guys to go in there and and look for this drone. Uh, there was a question in the chat by Professor Madness, uh, and it goes a little bit more on the technical side of things. So his question is uh, in regards to equipment. Uh, do you have a preference when it comes to filming? He was asking, you know, what's the worst camera you've ever used? So the flip side to that question for me would be, do you have a preference when it comes to shooting your documentaries? Well, part of being a filmmaker is just keeping up with the technology that keeps changing right. all the time. I used to shoot analog, of course. I used mm -hmm. to love Sony cameras, but when they closed all their service centers um, uh, and I worked with other filmmakers that were using Canon cameras, I started moving in and using Canons. Right. So now I'm a dedicated Canon user because they have much better color. And now I'm shooting digitally. So uh, part of this film was shot on digital tape and part of it was shot you know, with um, what you call, uh, you know, flash, flash cards, right. you know, and, and part of it was also shot on GoPro cameras mm -hmm. uh, and even a little tiny, you know, small uh, handheld uh, digital camera that has a movie setting. And I would occasionally pop that on and a little bit even for my cell phone. We live in an age where uh, technology allows us to do so much. It can be a bit daunting sometimes, but, you know, it's really great because I know that Uh, for example, with uh, with this documentary, what are some of the ways that people can see it? Because obviously we've talked a lot about it. Can people buy this or stream it? Where is this uh, documentary, excuse me, documentary available? Well, right now it's only really available for sale on my website, which is onwingsproductions.com. Okay. But um, you can see the screening list and you can go and see it either in some film festivals or UFO conferences. In fact, In Philadelphia, we're hosting a conference um, October uh, 9th and 10th, and we're showing it for free, open to the public. And um, the MUFON National Symposium, which will be held in Irvine, California this year, um, just next week, uh, the 24th, it starts Thursday the 24th, uh, that evening, they're showing, or I will be there mm -hmm. showing the Travis film, and it's also free and open to the public, so anybody in Southern California can show up at the Hotel Irvine and uh, see the film and have Q&A. I think it'll be 7 o'clock on the 24th at that hotel. Very cool. Um, but otherwise, they have to buy it. We probably will eventually put it to Vimeo and put it up mm -hmm. as a pay-per-view, but we haven't done that yet. Um, but I'll be perfectly honest, what, what constantly happens is, um, you know you have a good film when people post it illegally on YouTube. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this film has had over 40 illegal posts. Wow. And I'm still Uh, that's my my new part-time job is trolling through the internet and sending out you know copyright infringement uh, notices and it's a freaking pain in the neck but i have to do it to preserve the uh, the integrity of the film so i of can course. eventually maybe get a network interested in it but if it's up for free on the internet people aren't going to do it right and it's 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 really quite nerve-wracking as a filmmaker because uh, they have ads. You, you know, you, YouTube embeds ads into yeah. them. So there's like Mitsubishi or, you know, Apple computers right. or different cars or, you know, colognes and, and drug companies all have their ads every seven minutes 
plunked right into this documentary and they had no right to take it and put it up. So it's it's quite frustrating. Yeah, no, I bet. You mentioned earlier there's going to be a newer cut uh, release, correct? You're, you guys are doing some... Uh some uh, re-editing or something of that nature? Yes. Um, I had originally hoped that I would have clear, uh, you know, clear clearance on all the mm -hmm. footage in the film. And I used some archive footage from a production called UFOs Are Real. And this was co-produced by Stanton Friedman in yeah. 1978. And that's how I learned about it. Stanton told me about it. And he said, you know, I went out there and I shot with this film crew from California. So I contacted the producers of that show and asked them if I could license their footage mm -hmm. and tried to negotiate with them. And they agreed at first, uh, told me I could use the footage. We'd work out a contract. And then they kind of changed their mind after I'd had the film pretty much done. And they only gave me very, very limited licensing rights to use their footage. I can put it in film festivals. I can show it at UFO conferences. Uh -huh. I right now can't put it in a movie theater and charge admission. Uh -huh. I can't sell it to a major network uh, like a, a History Channel or Discovery or Sci-Fi right now with that footage in it. Right. So for that reason, I am remaking a commercial version, but I will hold that version back for the purpose of selling it to a network or something like that and see where and how that can work. Because as a filmmaker, that's the only way I'll actually make my money back. Selling $20 or $25 DVDs here and there, uh -huh. even if you sell 20 at a conference and you go to 20 conferences, you're never going to make back right. the money that you spent to make the film. So I need to actually sell it in order to make another film. Wow. You know, a lot of us don't realize how much work, time, money, blood, sweat, and tears go into, into making a, a documentary film. And I think when you take that into consideration, uh, you realize how, how much it hurts when people, uh, you know, illegally go about getting a, a copy of it. And uh, again, it's not a victimless crime, as uh, I guess a lot of times we like to think. But Jennifer, let me ask you, Travis is, like, like I said earlier, probably the biggest alien abduction case in my opinion where can you go as a documentary filmmaker who would be your next subject if you were to continue this theme of documentaries well i think i have a crop circle film in me it's um you know been germinating for a long mm -hmm. time i have a lot of footage uh, archived uh, on that topic um i also probably would love to do a film about ancient sites that i've been to Mm -hmm. Um, because, uh, you can't go to some of these sites and stand there and think that there's not some piece of our history that's missing. If right. we built this where and when and how, and if we didn't build it, who did? So mm -hmm. I think, um, Zachariah inspired in me a natural, uh, archaeologist that wants to really document in a new way, maybe a less, um, searching for the right word, maybe a not so much from the ancient alien perspective, but really from a logical approach of if we were to build this today, uh -huh. what would be involved and how complicated would it be? And how perfect was it that they built it so many thousands of years ago? And what does this mean about the culture that was there? I mean, there's a lot of direct logical information that we can draw 
from working with engineers and, and scientists. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, I have, I have a bachelor of science, um, in textile. So I'm drawn to understanding the most logical, maybe you call it Occam's razor, you know, right. how, how, how do you get from here to there? There's lots of phenomenon that interest me. I'm also very interested in synchronicity and mm-hmm. in consciousness and non-locality. So I may very well be drawn in that direction as well. Can you tell me a, a little bit about uh, synchronicity and how did you get familiar with that concept and, and, and why did you adopt it as, as something that is happening uh, and it happens in our lives? Well... Um, I can give you a little story if we have the yeah. time. Yeah, when I was first going to England to research and study crop circles, I had signed up on a trip that was going to be like 35 people. I, mm-hmm. I think I read something in the back of Nexus magazine and it was beyond boundaries or something like that. And I just kind of filled out the paperwork or went to a website and signed up. Uh-huh. I had no idea who I was going with, but I knew I didn't know how to go to England on my own and find these crop circles. And as I was preparing for the trip, my husband called a friend in England and uh-huh. he said, my wife's going to be trampsing through private property. She's probably going to get arrested. And if she does, will you go and bail her out of jail oh, since she lives <laughs> in England? A friend of and the friend said, sure, no problem. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to do that for you. And that day, this friend, his name is Richard. Mm-hmm. He goes home, and in his local paper was a very interesting crop circle that had appeared that looked like a computer grid. My husband's company makes products that are along the lines of component pieces that could be inside computers. Mm-hmm. So for them to have this conversation and then for this friend to go home and find this crop circle that was like a computer grid it was kind of synchronistic. So he sent it to me with a little note saying, Jen, you know, just be sure you have my number in your cell phone. Because if you can only make one call, you know, you want to call the right person if you're in jail. (laughs) And by the way, you might want to check this formation out. So I get this newspaper article and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, I've got to get into this, you know, formation. This is amazing. Right. So um, I look at this and I immediately think, Oh my, I've planned the totally wrong trip for myself. I'm a filmmaker. I'm going with my camera. I should have just hired somebody to be like my driver, to take me around, to introduce me to all the experts, to film the Mm -hmm. actual like digging up of the crops, the actual research, you know, something that's getting sent to Mr. Levengood. I'd really like to connect with Linda Howe and and Nancy Talbot and Bert Jansen and, you know, some of the best experts on this topic. And of course, uh, you know, Colin Andrews. So I'm looking at this article. I'm thinking that I've the wrong trip and the phone rings and it's Ruben Udiarte who's leading the trip and he says Jen I have some bad news for you and I'm like oh no what he said well essentially the trip's been canceled because everybody else canceled it's only oh, wow. me going I assume you don't want to go with me because you don't know me we've we've never met and you probably don't want to spend a week with a total stranger driving mm-hmm. around the countryside in England right and mm-hmm. I I started to cry. I said, are you freaking kidding me? Like, <laughs> what? Everybody canceled? There were 35 people on this trip. How could everybody cancel? Right. But they did. It's, it's wow. a long story how they all canceled. Wow. So it was Reuben and I. Now, if that's not synchronistic, mm-hmm. what is? Wow. So 
my first day there in England. I'm holding this article, right, with mm-hmm. this picture. And, and he said, Jen, this is like driving Miss Daisy. Like, where do you want to go? Who do you want to meet? <laughs> right? I said, well, I want to get into this grid. I'd really like to meet Nancy Talbot. And at that moment, we're like pulling into a field. Mm-hmm. And we're on a tractor path, and we have to kind of pass another van that's coming towards us. So we kind of pull up on the side of the embankment and let this van pass us. But the van stops and rolls down the window, and it's Nancy Talbot, whom Reuben knows. Oh, wow. And she says, Reuben, what are you doing tomorrow? I want to get into the grid. Can you bring your assistant? <laughs> wow. And what the whole trip was. Wow. Was constant constant synchronicity i was afraid to have a thought that was a negative thought uh-huh. for fear it would happen i was gonna say that i was uh, i was gonna ask you what was your um you know like your state of mind because when things fall into place um you know obviously you get excited or whatever but it's funny that you say that because that was also my same thought too it's like you know when you're on a good streak it's almost like you're scared to even like consider anything going remotely uh, yes. bad uh, well, for that same fear. We, we had that too on the trip. Really? Ruben and I Ruben and I were walking out of a crop circle at mm-hmm. one point and he had a fanny pack which he hooked to his backpack uh-huh. because he didn't feel like having it around his waist anymore. Right. And as we were walking the fanny pack was banging on his backpack. Now mm-hmm. we had a two and a half to three mile walk from Adam's grave where we were up high looking mm-hmm. at some crop circles back to where our car was parked And we needed to get there before the sun went down. So we were kind of really, you know, hiking a good, a good pace. Right. And I said to him three or four times, I said, Ruben, your backpack is bothering me. It's worrying me. Your fanny pack banging on your backpack. You're going to lose something. I just have this intuition. Something's going to fall out. You know, you should, you should put it around your waist or put it inside your backpack. Don't Mm -hmm. hang it from your backpack. He said, no, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And he like ignored what I was saying like three or four times. So we get to the car about two miles later, right? Uh-huh. And he, he pops open the back of the trunk and swings his backpack off. And he realizes that his fanny pack was hooked to the zipper of his backpack. So as he was walking, it slowly unzipped his backpack. Oh, wow. And numerous things fell oh, out of his no. backpack. Like his glasses that he oh, needed to boy. drive that night and his phone book. And, and he didn't know what else he lost, but he knew he lost a number of different things. Like he kept discovering what he had lost. Oh, well, he needed his glasses to drive at night. Yeah. And you're driving on the other side of the road right. over there. And he didn't have them. And it was now dark. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it was a little tricky. It sounds like it was quite the adventure. But let me ask you about another thing I, I noticed on your website. And this is really interesting because I'm, I'm a bit familiar with, with uh, Dr. Carol Rosen. Uh, I'm a, I know a little bit about some of the things that she has spoken about. How did you um, connect with her? And can you tell me a little bit about this, this video that, that's on your website called Peace and Space Treaty, Dr. Carol Rosen reads the treaty. Yes. Well, I was at the Open Minds Conference, which I've been going to uh, ever since it started. I I actually uh, attended some of the um, international UFO congresses that were still in Lachlan as well. But I had heard Carol present, and I had brought my film 
equipment with me there because I had done a project for Kathy Martin, who was the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. And I oh. needed to shoot an interview with Kathy Martin. So I had all my camera equipment and I was out in Arizona at the Open Minds Conference and I heard Carol present. And I was very, very moved by her desire to try to create a treaty that prevents us from putting nuclear weapons into space mm-hmm. and her desire to get you know, multi-nations to agree to this and mostly indigenous nations in small countries is where she's starting with this project and then building pressure uh, on to larger countries eventually like the United States to abide by this treaty because there's a lot of unknowns and unpredictable things with space yeah. uh, that we would probably be better off not having nuclear weaponry there, but there's a lot of debate about that. And she was forewarned by Von Braun, whom she worked with yeah. at NASA, yeah. that this would become an issue. Somehow he saw things that were going to be planned that he knew NASA was working on, and he was very worried about some of their plans. And he um, encouraged Carol to take up this cause um, after he was gone and to try to work towards this mission. Now, I'm you know, a person who believes that peace can be achieved. I believe in in dialogues. That's why I did the, the disclosure dialogue with Ron James, another production I won yeah. Ebbies for. I traveled enough with people, um, which was a peace movement in the in the seventies. So I felt that if I could help Carol in any way, I would try to. Wow. And I sat her down and said, Tell me about this. I'll do some web videos for you and you can put them up on your uh, website because uh-huh. people want to see things. They yeah. want to. They don't want to read. They want a, a little video. So I made her three different videos, and Chris O'Brien helped me very much with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and my goal was also to go around and interview some of the other people who were involved in the treaty, like Edgar Mitchell, which I have done right. now. Um, and I believe we have a re-edit of that, uh, which it may have been posted, maybe it's not, but um, you know, uh, that has Edgar Mitchell in this little piece. Right. So that's uh, what it's about, and that's how I got started on it. Yeah, the, Dr. Carol Rosen. I remember watching uh, one of uh, one of her videos uh, a few years back, talking about how um, you know she she knew uh, Bernard Von Brown and and this uh, uh, plan to weaponize space, and and talking about you know the something about the last card being the alien invasion card or something uh i think yes. along those lines and it was i mean you know i'm familiar with with the the story of uh burner bomb brown you know project paperclip and all that so hearing her talk about something like that it was really interesting because this is kind of where my uh conspiracy hat comes out and i'll say that you know i believe that nasa especially during those years you know they were doing a lot of things that we didn't and we still don't know about, at least in my opinion. And that's why I found her statement so, so interesting. Uh, so it's really cool that you helped her out to put some of these videos up because, you know, some of the, the, the information that she has is, is really, really interesting and really great. I know that we're almost out of time. So let me ask you, uh, I just got a couple more questions. One of them is, why did you decide to make uh, this documentary? Uh, you, you mentioned something a, a minute or two ago when we were talking about these videos with uh, Dr. Rosen that, you know, people don't, don't like to read anymore. Was that your, your principal uh, motivation or at least your initial motivation uh, to, to make a, a, a documentary film? Well, I, of course, was attracted to the veracity of the story, you know, mm-hmm. who wouldn't want to make this film? I just didn't know if I was capable. I hadn't really done a film like this before. 
And it was complicated to actually undertake it. And I had to take it apart in stages. But once I started taking it apart in pieces Mm -hmm. and I started looking at what the pieces were that I had in place, Mm -hmm. I realized that I I had it all. I just had to kind of swim through what I call the data nightmare because, Mm -hmm. you know, these days doing a film, it's all data files. And you have to know where the file is, where it's stored, what it's named, how to access it, how to reconnect it, what happens when you lose it. You know, Right, of course. It's easier in some ways, but much more complex in others, because when something goes wrong, I'm, I don't know how to fix it. I have to call in a tech support person or whatever. And I also knew that I didn't have a drone. I didn't know how to fly one. I knew I was going to want some aerial photography. And I was very, very gifted in this film that people came together to help me, like Gary Hilton and Ben Hansen and uh-huh. uh, a guy by the name of Will Kreeble, who did some artwork for the project. And, uh, you know, just many people from many walks of life uh, stepped up. I had some wonderful young editors in California who worked with me that took my my four to five to seven hour film, depending on which files you were looking at. And they honed them down to an hour and a half for me in a way that I wasn't able to do and in a really brilliant way. Wow. Um, and helped, helped turn the story into a, a personal, you know, journey of Travis and a personal interest story rather than just a UFO story. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to summarize it, um, what, would, what would you say your mission statement here is? You know, uh, what are you hoping will change in the world with input, you know, such as documentaries like this, you know, what? What do we well, want my, to see? My goal, my goal with the Travis film mm-hmm. was to make a film that was a breakthrough film. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping that this film is one that makes it, and it is making it now, into mainstream film festivals where a wider audience is looking at this, not just people who have gone to a UFO conference. Right. Yeah. looking at a UFO film at a UFO conference. My goal is to have it play in a lot of mainstream film festivals. If it wins enough awards, it will make it into the art houses and it mm-hmm. will play in art house films, you know, theaters. Right. And I think if it can do that, it can, you know, of course, stimulate interest again in the Travis story. And that will help Travis. It'll help him sell more books. It'll give him more speaking engagements. So in that way, I will be helping Travis, which is a nice thing to be able to do. Of course. But I also want to bring the younger generations who don't, who you think, oh, that was 40 years ago. That was long before I was born. How can that be important? It's so very much important. Right. Of course. And uh, Jennifer, we're almost out of time, but we got to let people know about this. September 24th, Thursday at 7.30 p.m., there's going to be an, an event, correct? And it's going to be the screening of the... Yeah, well, it's a it's the free pre-screening. So yeah. right. for the people who are listening to us here in Southern California, you're all going to definitely want to check it out. It's, I'm telling you, an amazing, amazing documentary. And uh, if I remember correctly, you said there will be a Q&A, right? You will yes, be there? Yes, there will. Yes, there will. We'll have Lee Spiegel there. We'll mm-hmm. have Ben Hansen. Ron James will be there. I'll be there. Travis, I think, will be there. Very cool. Um, have Stanton Friedman and Kathy Martin there. So a lot of people that are in the film will be there and you can meet them and we can, we're going to do a dialogue. We'll go, the film will end at about 9.30, quarter mm-hmm. of 10, and we'll do the Q&A as long as they'll let us be in the room. So certainly an hour, you know, maybe a little longer. Right. That's awesome. That's amazing. So definitely people get out 
out there uh, that's going to be in Irvine. It's not too far from L.A., and if you're in Orange County, you're already in the neighborhood, so definitely uh, check that out. Jennifer, the website is onwingsproductions.com, and Wings is spelled W-I-N-G-E-S, onwingsproductions.com, and that's where people can go and get more info on the documentary and all the other stuff that you're working on, the stuff you've done. And, uh, and of course, the, the other website that people need to check out is uh, the skyfiresummit.com, correct? And why don't you give people the details for that? That will be um, in Heber, Arizona, which is about a two-and-a-half to three-hour drive from the Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix. So you fly to Sky Harbor, and then uh-huh. you rent a car or um, probably that's the best way uh, because you really can't take public transportation up there. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it will be at the Vice Ranch, um, which is right on the main route that comes through uh, Heber, Arizona. And Heber is the closest place to the actual abduction site that took place for Travis 40 years ago. Oh, wow. So it'll be in a lovely barn, in, mm-hmm. in which is a it's a refurbished barn where we'll hold the conference. Right. You can stay at accommodations right there at Bison Ranch, and that's all on the website. And there'll be two days of fabulous speakers and a visit up to the site with Travis during the day. And there'll be a night watch from, from the parking lot, mm-hmm. uh, which is wonderful, with incredible equipment. Ben Hansen does the most amazing night sky watches for anyone who's never been to one. It's quite an event. You won't want to miss that. No, it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun to be out there and and just uh, yeah, uh, commemorating the that that you know what happened on that fateful night in November fifth, nineteen seventy five to to Travis and and his crew. Uh, Jennifer, I can't even begin to express how thankful we are that you could join mm-hmm. us tonight. It's been a pleasure talking to you and you know learning more about this film and and I really hope that people. Uh, uh, you know, are motivated to go out and watch it because it's it's great. It's full of a lot of interesting information. That, like I said, you know, I've read the book, I've, I've read numerous interviews and watched tons of clips, but the documentary still, you know, 40 years later, offers some really interesting and new insight and information that at least I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for being with us tonight. We really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you both for having me on. It was my great pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'll be in touch, Jennifer. Have a great, uh, well, for you, it's uh, early morning. Thank you for staying <laughs> yes, up so late with you. us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. Good night. Wow. That was uh that was uh, a lot to pack literally, in. A lot to know, pack into a brain. Yeah, it exceeded my <laughs> expectations. I'll tell you that much. It was great. It was it was an amazing interview. Bear in mind, expectations were already high. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Because that could mean two things. <laughs> You're so bad. I want to thank everybody that tuned in. By the way, I really appreciate everybody that that also took the time to uh, uh, keep us company here. And and uh, I'm just uh, thanking Jennifer really quick bef- before you know I let her go completely from our cyber connection here uh, but no I mean I really appreciate everybody that took the time to tune in like I said this is a case that's very you know it, from childhood it, it has fascinated me caught my attention made my mind wonder and uh, and it's always uh, very humbling to get a chance to talk to Travis and discuss this case and obviously tonight we had the 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 added company of Jennifer Stein, who directed this this incredible documentary that I think, again, if you're in the Southern California area this week, you want to make it down there. And it's free. I know, right? I mean, everyone loves free stuff anyway. I know, I do. Considering movies cost like 20 bucks. Yeah, I mean, 
if you live Plus within popcorn. driving distance, it's worth it. Yeah, seriously. It's like you need a second job nowadays to go to theater. Just catch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely try to make it out to your event. Skyfiresummit.com is the website. If you want to check out the event, uh, I believe they still got tickets left. If you if you want to make it out there, Arizona, well, and check quite, it out. Yeah, a few of our listeners already from the, the more... Yeah, the, not really England, east, southern England. Eastern side of the. Yeah. But it's an, it's oh, like in, in center, right? I yeah, think. I feel I, geography. I'm, I don't even know where I'm. I'm not from here, here, so. <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, definitely check it out. Skyfiresummit.com and uh, also Travis-Walton.com is the website where you can order the book. Um, his book sells for quite a lot. Like if you go to Amazon and certain vendors, um, his his book is is quite expensive. Uh, but uh, if you go to his website, uh, he'll even sign it for you. So uh, uh, get it from him. And, uh, and of course, be on the lookout. Maybe we'll get that special edition Fire in the Sky Blu-ray sometime mm-hmm. in, the, in the near future as well. right? So I want to thank Travis Walton for being with us. Jennifer Stein, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, if you miss any part of this show, you will find it on our website in the next day or two, uh, along with a, a nice little write-up courtesy of our very own Genevieve Yue. And if you haven't already, the tables were turned on us, and we were actually guests on Ground Zero oh, with cool. Clyde Lewis. I haven't that had cool. that much fun in a long time, except Sunday nights. <laughs> That's the only time. No, check mind. check it out. Um, if you go to groundzeromedia.org .org. or just you know Google Ground Zero, Ground Zero Media, um, you can see the interview we have on there or on SoundCloud or just go to wotrradio.com. You'll find it straight up there at the top. Definitely check that out. So that being said, as always, Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook, Genevieve mm-hmm. Uway on Twitter, also at No Added Flavors. O-U-R-S at the end. Thursday yep. nights, right here. Same channel, same place. Send your requests, jokes, facts, and anything else you want her to talk about, <laughs> do, or whatever. Um, find us uh, at WOTR Radio. It's our Twitter. WOTRRadio.com is the website. And because a lot of people were telling me, oh, we don't have access to iTunes or whatever, and now you can get the show on um, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now Spreaker. So have at it, kids. Take your pick. Any. <laughs> Any of those. And more coming soon as more people kind of jump on this stuff that we call West of the Rockies. That being said, take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Genevieve, thanks so much for tonight. Good night, everyone out there. And we're going to go out with a little a little nighttime music. I haven't played this song in a while. Is that lullaby? It'll put you to sleep <laughs> in a good way. Enjoy this one. We'll see you next week. The Independent FM Radio, Los Angeles.